Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, October 23rd, 2021. Right now, once again, it is Wednesday morning, and we have our friend Truthvids here with us to present part 57 of his ongoing 100 Proofs that the Israelites were white. Throughout our last few presentations in these 100 Proofs, we have been discussing rather related subjects from the Revelation, as they are also all related to the same passages in prophecy. These are the opening of the little book in Revelation chapter 10, and the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. Now we shall address aspects of Revelation chapter 12, and the destiny and plight of the woman in the wilderness. As we have already asserted, the fulfillment of these prophecies having been realized, while no other group but white Europeans have fulfilled them and have done so with remarkable precision, it is without doubt that the Israelites were white and that modern Europeans, at least for the most part, are indeed their genetic descendants. Hello, Truthfits. Thank you for being here, and praise Yahweh. Hello, Bill. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh. Uh, yes, yeah, so here we're getting on to um, the interesting parts in Revelation that completely dumbfound uh, modern Christians, right? They just have no idea what this is. And um, J Jews always lead them around in circles when they try to explain it as, as the authority, right? And and it just leaves Christians baffled because they have no idea who, who this woman is. But once you get it, it's just so obvious, right, that it can only be the children of Israel, that there's only one woman, and that's the wife of Yahweh, that the children of Israel collectively. And uh, because he divorced them, that they're, they're a woman now, but he will eventually remarry them in the Supper of the Lamb. And um, it, it can only be the Israelites, and uh, who else can it be, right? And we see that older Christian identity denominations or, or British Israel, they never focused on parts like this in the revelation so that's why it's a, a really good subject to go over and explain to our people because it really explains our history and, and it lines up everything and shows how we got to our present circumstances and situation right bill well well absolutely if, if we look throughout the prophets jeremiah chapter 31 32 not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand, although I was a husband unto them. There, there are several places in the prophets, especially in the prophet Hosea, where the children of Israel are referred to as the wife of Yahweh God. The nation is the wife of God. And that is the a paradigm which was upheld by Christ himself when he declared himself to be the bridegroom in his gospel, fulfilling the promise of Yahweh God to once again marry himself to the children of Israel, which is found in Hosea chapters 1 and 2. So this concept of Israel as the bride or wife and nationally, national, collective Israel as a woman is found throughout the books of the prophets. 
It's found in Ezekiel, it's found in Jeremiah, it's found in Isaiah, and especially in Hosea. And here it is in Revelation, where we have that same language. That's not a coincidence. That is telling us who this woman is, that this woman must be the collective children of Israel. And um, once again, it just shows you if you don't study the, the prophets or even read it, that you can have no idea what's going on in the Revelation, right? And, and that's the key to read it all. Absolutely. The entire Revelation is based on and is an extension, a reiterance of the words of many of those prophets. You'll find Daniel in the Revelation, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, Zechariah. All of those prophets are fully reflected in the Revelation, which I certainly hope to illustrate at an even deeper level in an upcoming commentary on the Revelation, a, a revision of my first Revelation commentary, a revision and expansion that will probably consume most of 2022, most of my Friday night Bible commentaries next year. That's a digression. But that's what I'm hoping to accomplish. Before we begin our interpretation of the woman taken to the wilderness in Revelation chapter 12, we should once again repeat some of the prophecies which explain that the children of Israel in their captivity would indeed be sent into the wilderness. These are found primarily in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. As we have also said several times earlier in these presentations, the last chapters of Isaiah were written addressing Israel in captivity after the Assyrians had taken most of both Israel and Judah and forcibly settled them in diverse places in the north. That's very clear in the narrative of Isaiah because you see the siege of Jerusalem and the interactions of King Hezekiah, who was king during the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem, which happened right around 700 BC. In the late chapter 30s in, Jeremiah, in Isaiah, I'm sorry, it may have been chapters 36, 37, 38, 39. And then you get to chapter 41, I believe it's 41. And Israel is being addressed, but it's Israel in the isles, in the isles and coastlands to which they would be ultimately sent. And those isles and coastlands are the nations found in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 19, where it reiterates where Israel was going to be sent. And when we see that, we see that the Israelites are the Cimmerians and the Galatahi who had invaded portions of the Roman Empire uh, or, or portions of, of the Hellenistic Greek empires and Rome itself, as Isaiah 66, 19 states, but they didn't, they were not successful in those invasions. They were repelled and forced to live outside of the Mediterranean world, at least until the fall of Rome, 
when the Goths and the Huns and, and, and the Franks and other tribes did successfully invade Rome. So they dwelt in the wilderness during that period. Europe was described as a wilderness. If you read the historians, if you read Strabo and Diodorus Siculus and others, you will see that Europe certainly was a wilderness at that time, without a doubt. These people were living in forests and swamps, and, and if they were fortunate, in fields for many centuries before they could establish those lands and, and civilize them, before they could clear forests and, and create sustainable agricultural societies. They lived as, as wanderers in the forest. They were literally in the wilderness. And um, that also lines up with Genesis 10, right? When you see all the nations being spread out and Javan goes to the Isles and the coastlands and, and it's written um, by Moses in, you know, in basically within the vicinity of the land of Israel. So those lands are basically the same place that eventually the children of Israel will end up, right? It all yes. kind of adds up, right? Oh, yes. You know, it's all a consistent historical narrative once the history is understood. It's not hard to understand the history. We're not making it up. All one has to do is read the ancient Greek and Roman classics. It's all right there. Classical studies are actually despised today. But when there are classical studies today, and, and I've, I've seen this over and over again, looking at books offered in the humanities by today's universities, when there are classical studies, they are usually endeavoring to approve of modern corruption and perversions through the lens of classical literature. So they study homosexuality in ancient Greece or, or, or things like that, lesbianism and, and pedophilia in ancient Greece or, or ancient Rome in order to gain approval for that behavior today. The, the universities are all Marxist and corrupt, and they all need to be burned to the ground so that we could build new ones, because that the corruption is right to the core of our academic system today. That's another digression. As an example of our assertions, we read in part in Isaiah chapter 43, where the children of Israel in captivity are being addressed. I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus saith Yahweh, which makes a way in the sea, and a path in the mighty waters, which brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together, they shall not rise, they are extinct, they are quenched as tow. The ancient military might of Israel and the might of the Assyrians, which conquered Israel and brought them into the wilderness, into captivity in the first place, would ultimately be destroyed. I will even make a way in the wilderness. I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead. Remember not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? 
I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. So we see Isaiah in the captivity period of Israel is depicting the children of Israel who were brought into captivity as going into the wilderness, not remaining in Mesopotamia or around Palestine. And we see that evil races are going to be forced to acknowledge a chosen race, right? Because he's going to feed them. So ultimately, that's Christianity and all these Jews who were forced to kneel before us, right? We mentioned this, but again, it just proves two different races, right? Well, absolutely. That the fate, that the Jews, these people that went into the wilderness were not Jews. And Flavius Josephus described an innumerable multitude of them beyond the Euphrates, which would be in the Caucasus mountain regions and, and northern Mesopotamia. And nobody there was ever called by the name of Jew. Historians such as Diodorus Siculus and Strabo of Cappadocia, decades before Josephus had written, had also described who dwelt beyond the Euphrates in those regions, and what you have are the Scythian tribes that were co-descendants of the ancient Cimmerians, the ancient Cymri, or Saka, if you will, who became known ultimately, as the Germanic tribes, the Germanic people. As we had also discussed in these last few presentations, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were both contemporaries, and each of them began to write perhaps a hundred years after Isaiah. Yet they continued to address the children of Israel long after the captivities, as well as the remnant of Ju Judah in Jerusalem. So in Jeremiah chapter 30, the word of Yahweh speaks of reconciliation for Israel. And we read, Therefore feel that, fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh, neither be dismayed, O Israel. This is from Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 10. For lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and shall be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. Now, this was written well over a hundred years after Israel had begun to go into captivity, and before Jerusalem itself was finally destroyed, so that the remnant of Judah was not yet taken captive into Babylon, although the prophet had been foreboding that, as he also does here. So, a little further on here, we see that also where he says from verse 18, Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents, and have mercy on his dwelling places. And the city shall be built upon her own heap, and the palace shall remain after the manner thereof. Now, now that's before Jerusalem is destroyed in his writing that Jeremiah is writing this, which forebodes its destruction 
but also it's rebuilding. There are other prophecies similar to this. Jeremiah has a 70 years prophecy that stated that Jerusalem should lie in ruin for 70 years. And basically it did from about 586 BC until the time that the second temple was rebuilt in 516 BC. However, even once the second temple was rebuilt, the city and the walls were still in ruins. And the walls were rebuilt by Nehemiah by 490 BC, but the city wasn't rebuilt inside those walls until the time of Ezra after 568 BC. And that chronology is correct and can be established from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, even though modern Christians all believe that Nehemiah followed Ezra, which is absolutely ridiculous. Ezra actually followed Nehemiah. Modern Christians believe anything the Jews tell them. So about 70 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, the rebuilding began with the start of the building of the Second Temple in 520 BC. That was completed in 516. But then we read a little further on. In the opening verses of Jeremiah chapter 31, right after it says that the city would be built again on its own heap, meaning on top of its old ruins, we read in Jeremiah chapter 31, at the same time, saith Yahweh, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. So as the second temple is being rebuilt by the approximately 42,000 men of Judah who returned with Zerubbabel, at the same time, that's the wording here, did Israel find grace in the wilderness and also have a promise of reconciliation to Yahweh their God. That Israel, that part, was much more populous than the 42,000 who returned to establish what would later become Judea and what would later become corrupt, where they mixed with Edomites and became known as Jews. So in this passage of Jeremiah, we see some of Israel rebuilding Jerusalem and the rest of Israel remaining in the wilderness. That was the much more populous portion. The rest of Israel were never known as Jews and they were not Jews. But as we shall see, the process of their finding grace would take many centuries as they would have no news of their forgiveness or salvation until they received the gospel of Christ, the gospel, as Paul called it, the gospel of reconciliation. This is the reconciliation of which Paul was speaking. He wasn't speaking about some reconciliation of all things that are, that, that's claimed by the modern churches. If you really read the passage Christ was citing, which is found in Malachi chapter 4, where he spoke about the reconciliation of all things, that refers to the reconciliation of all things between Yahweh God and the children of Israel, period. That's what the reconciliation of all things is. 
pastors take the word of Christ. Modern denominational pastors take the words of Christ and ignore the passage in Malachi that Christ was referring to so that they could make up their own spin on it. And Bill, um, if they're going into the wilderness, it would have to be somewhere new, right? Or somewhere that's pretty much uninhabited. If if it just meant back to the lands of Israel or Assyria, that there was already people there who already had a civilization and infrastructure. So it wouldn't really be a wilderness. So it has to be somewhere new, right? Which is obviously Europe. Absolutely. And that fulfills where it says in... Second Samuel chapter 7, in verse 10, moreover, I will appoint... Now, now, Yahweh God is speaking through Nathan the prophet, and he's speaking to David, and they are standing in Jerusalem. And it says, moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own. Now, Palestine was never a place of their own. It belonged to the Canaanites and the Rephaim before the children of Israel invaded it. They will dwell in a place of their own and move no more. So they're going off to this wilderness. And that was the plan of God from the beginning, as we see evident in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If David's standing in Palestine when he hears those words, then that place could not possibly be in Palestine. So we were just moving through the lands of Canaan, sort of, and that was just to uh, give us history and give us, uh, you know, the Bible so we could learn from it. And ultimately from Europe, the, the real Christian ministry could begin, right? Well, absolutely. The Old Testament has many purposes. It connects us once we figure it out, once we, fig once we understand it in its historical context and not merely from a theological point of view, because the theologians all fail by ignoring the historical context. Once we understand it from a historical context, we understand that the Old Testament is our describes our origins as a race, describes why we should be Christians today, and it describes in our ancient history how to succeed and how to fail, depending on how we could keep the commandments, the basic moral principles outlined in the Old Testament, the commandments of our God. And the rituals and the Levitical priesthood were only the way, they were only the structure of society, the organization of society, but they were not the fabric of that society. The fabric of the society are the people themselves and the, their compliance with God, if I say that correctly. So the yeah, rituals... Um, I, I only realized today, um, j just to show you that if you really understand the history, it all fits together, that um, where Isaiah says that he gave up um, you know, Yahweh gave up Egypt, um, e Egypt, Ethiopia, and Seba. And then a hundred years later, Jeremiah mocks um, Ethiopia or, or Kush for being race mixed, right? Yes. And it only just occurred to me, well, of course he would do that because a hundred years have gone by and they're all race mixed now. But j just as, as an example, if you understand the history, it, it all adds up, right? 
Yes, absolutely. That That's found in Isaiah chapter 43, where Yahweh said that he gave up Egypt, Ethiopia, and Seba on behalf of the children of Israel. And if you look at secular history, this is right on Wikipedia. Around that same time, Egypt was invaded by Nubians. Ethiopia had recently been invaded by Nubians, and those nations became race-mixed with Nubians, with blacks. So, Nubians ruled over Egypt for about 75 years before the Egyptians took, retook control of their nation. However, they could never get rid of the tainted blood. The blood of Egypt was destroyed, and Egypt would go downhill from there. The later Egypt of the Roman era was not an Egyptian Egypt. It was a Macedonian Egypt. The Ptolemies were Macedonians. Large numbers of Macedonians moved into Egypt and basically emulated or sought to emulate the ancient Egyptian culture, which had been white. But they generally didn't mix or mingle with the Egyptians themselves. And their blood wasn't really destroyed until Islam had taken over Egypt in the 6th century AD. 7th century AD, I'm sorry. So Roman Egypt was a white Greek Egypt. Cleopatra was fully a Macedonian. These people were not anything like today's Egyptians. Yeah, and it just shows again. It just shows you knowing all the history, it all adds up, right? So if you didn't realize the timeline of Isaiah and Jeremiah, you wouldn't get what, what I just said, right? Because most uh, modern Christians, if you said, you know, give us the timelines, they would have no idea of of the prophets, right? Absolutely not. It, it takes a lot of study to put all this together, and a, a lot of study outside the Bible, a lot of study of ancient history. It's nothing that's going to be done in an afternoon. It's something that takes 20 years, every bit of it. So I've been at it for 20, I'm, I'm trying to think, <laughs> for 25 years now. I've been studying this. And, and the study's never complete. You're never going to get there because no man could possibly know everything or learn everything. It's not possible. But once you have the core narrative and you could see that it's true from every possible angle then it it can't be refuted and and everything that conflicts with it has to be examined in context and probably even retranslated or or understood from a fresh perspective you can't take the old cloth of the Roman Catholic Church teachings and apply this as a patch onto it, it doesn't work. The cloth will tear, as Christ himself had said, in reference to his Christian teachings and the false doctrines of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You can't apply this as a patch on an old cloth. You have to start with an entirely new cloth. You have to look at this Bible from an entirely fresh perspective within this historical narrative. And it works, and every aspect of it works. So the last of these examples of Israel in the wilderness, which we have already offered here, is from Ezekiel chapter 34. 
where we read in part, My sheep wandered through all the mountains, and upon every high hill. Yeah, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. This is also a depiction of Israel in the wilderness, and they were scattered because the shepherds did not feed their flocks. So that statement was made within the context of a promise by Yahweh God to come and feed the flocks himself, which is something that was fulfilled in the ministry of Christ and the spread of the gospel to the European peoples. But even earlier in Ezekiel, where we once again see Israel as a nation referred to as a woman. And this is a passage that I saved for today. I did not cite it in in the last few weeks. We read in chapter 19, in a lamentation for the princes of Israel, thy mother, and that's a reference to Israel as a nation, the bride or wife of Yahweh, Thine mother is like a vine in thy blood, planted by the waters. She was fruitful and full of branches by reason of many waters. And she had strong rods for the scepters of them that bear rule, and her stature was exalted among the thick branches. She appeared in her height with the multitude of her branches. This is talking about the flourishing of a people into a great nation. But she was plucked up in fury, taken down by the Assyrians, in the wrath of Yahweh. And she was cast to the ground, and the east wind dried up her fruit. Her strong rods were broken and withered, the fire consumed them. And now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty ground. And fire has gone out of a rod of her branches, which has devoured her fruit, so that she has no strong rod to, a skept- to be a scepter to rule. This is a lamentation and shall be for a lamentation. No doubt. The dry and thirsty ground is the same ground which Yahweh had promised to water for his people in Isaiah chapter 43, and that too represents the gospel of Christ. While the Israelites were initially scattered among the Persians, Medes, Assyrians, Babylonians, and others, we read in Ezekiel chapter 20, where Yahweh promised to bring them out from those nations, as he also had promised in Isaiah, where it says in Ezekiel, and I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and there will I plead with you face to face, like as I pled with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith Yahweh God. And this was accomplished in the Germanic migrations and the ultimate receiving of the gospel by those same Germanic tribes. Now the Germanic nations were descended from the Israelites of the captivity, 
of the Assyrian captivity, they weren't the only Israelites. There's other threads to the same prophecies and to the same story, because there were certainly Israelites among the Greeks, the Dorians, the Danans, the Macedonians, and the Romans were Israelites. Many of the Gauls and the Bretons and the Irish were Israelites descended from the ancient Phoenician mariners so, so and, and colonists that had come from the Phoenicians. So there were other branches of the Israelites that we shouldn't discount, but we're focusing on this woman in the wilderness and more than anything, they are represented by the Germanic tribes, which and, came um, from in the, the wilderness of Egypt. That's where he was given all the commandments, right? Like gradually, bit by bit, more and more laws. So you'd expect something like that to the uh, children of Israel in the wilderness, and that would be Christianity, which bit by bit they accepted in, in the same way, right? Well, right, and that's Paul. That's how Paul of Tarsus told the Galatahi, the Galatians, that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. If they were not Israelites, that would make absolutely no sense whatsoever. Paul would have been talking in, in, in mysteries to them, in, in language that they couldn't even understand. But they certainly were brought to understand it because they are the descendants in part of these people. Those Galatians were Hellenized by that time, but they were still Galatians. So now, understanding these promises, we may turn to Revelation chapter 12 and assert that we can understand it. However, it must be asserted first that Revelation chapter 12 is a prophecy of things which do not entirely follow the events prophesied in the earlier chapters. Rather, it starts from the beginning and reveals things which had happened in the past and in the remote past before it advances the prophecy of God beyond what has already been prophesied up to this point in the Revelation. Once we explain our interpretation of Revelation chapter 12, we shall then look ahead to Revelation chapter 17 and see that the white race also precisely fits the circumstances which are prophesied for the destiny of the woman in the wilderness. So with that, we will begin with that background, because background is always necessary, we will begin with Proof 68 in this list and Revelation chapter 12, The Woman in the Wilderness. I don't know if you have anything to interject. Yeah, yeah, that you should realize that if the entire Bible is only about the children of Israel, then you should expect Revelation as well, right? I believe it's only just over 10 chapters of Genesis and then you're straight to Abraham and then, so, so in the first book, it's already switching to Abraham and his family. And then that's it. It's just about his family, the children of Israel, for the rest of the Bible. So the last chapter of Revelation, you shouldn't expect it to be about anyone else. It's clearly going to be about us, the children of Israel, and our ultimate destiny, right? Well, well absolutely. If you look at the words of Paul of Tarsus <clears throat> in Acts chapters 26 and 28, his struggle was 
exclusively for the 12 tribes of Israel by his own words, as they were recorded by Luke. If you look at the final chapters of the Revelation, first, if you look at Revelation chapter 7, only members of the tribes of the children of Israel had, quote-unquote, been sealed. And if you look at the final chapter, chapters, two chapters of the Revelation, the city of God contains 12 gates which represent the tribes of the children of Israel. No one else is going to get into that city. This entire book, from front to back, is a history and a set of laws and a prophecy of things to come which concern only the children of Israel, only the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and then Jacob. And where it mentions other people, they are usually given up to the enemies of God, nations that were of like origin as Israel, but whom God had allowed to go their own way, so they don't figure in to the positive side of this story, even though they have, they still have hope, which was promised to Adam. That hope is separate from this issue of world history and the role which Yahweh chose the children of Israel alone to fulfill in that history. If you set, if you negate any of that, then you are basically denying the word of God himself and imagining that God does not keep his promises. If you try to squeeze anybody else into the equation imagining that anybody could become a Christian, then you're denying the words of Yahweh God in the Old Testament and the words of Christ in the New Testament and the words of the apostles who never made such a claim. And they use this minority of episodes in order to imagine that God has really changed his mind, such as the Ethiopian eunuch, who can be proven to be an Israelite, such as the story of Ruth, who can be proven to have been an Israelite, even though she was called a Moabite. They use these as opportunities to try to imagine that God changed his mind, but God insists in his word that he does not change his mind. So these people, these universalist Judeo-Christians and this universalist Roman Catholic Church and these Greek Orthodox and all of these other Christian sects have basically been denying the word of God for over 1,700 years. And that's because, if you read the Church Fathers, you'll see that this replacement theology was being promoted by the second century when the apostles did not teach replacement theology. The Jews had already persecuted apostolic Christianity out of existence and began to use, began to interject this idea of replacement theology. It's found in Irenaeus in the second century. It's found in Justin Martyr in the second century. It's found in Origen in Alexandria in the third century. Because men, early Christians, did not understand the history, which Paul of Tarsus 
had exhibited a clear understanding of. Paul of Tarsus exhibited a clear understanding of this history. Men didn't understand it until Sir Henry Layard and other English and, and French and German archaeologists began to dig up the ruins of Nineveh in the 19th century and acquire the understanding of Assyrian cuneiform and Babylonian cuneiform so that they could ultimately, they could understand this history. And that's where British Israel was founded. Now, British Israel wasn't right because it was putting the, this new patch on old cloth. However, they were on the right path. Yeah, and I know we've mentioned it before, but you can, in Justin Mutter's, um you know, what he wrote, you can un you can see that he understood that there was a race of devils, like physical, but he still believed that they could be saved. And then after him, it just disappears completely now that there is no devil race. We're all just the same, right? Yes, the Jews, yeah. obviously, that's the first thing the Jews would have got rid of in, in terms of doctrine, right? It was mentioned by Justin Mater, who, who ultimately the church had ignored practically, and, and it was mentioned by Tertullian, whom was ultimately labeled a heretic by the church. I don't know if Justin was labeled a heretic, but the church certainly never kept his teachings. And, and in fact, most of his writing is lost. The apology was only a small portion of his writing. The early Roman Catholic Church had actually gotten rid of, had actually burned or... or let fall into disuse and decay the works of many early Christian writers. The works of the early Christian writers that we have are only a small portion of what was evidently the complete body of writing put out by early Christians. So we don't know and we will never know what the church had gotten rid of. We'll never know. We'll never know what it said. So what I'm saying is that the Roman Catholic Church is, was highly selective of what early Christian writings it maintained. They were not unbiased. They were not objective. A lot of early Christian writings are lost. A lot of the Greek and Roman classics are also lost. E even books that writers had 1,800 years ago, are lost today because they were neglected. They were not maintained. That and I believe you said bad. before that they covered up um, some of the church fathers. If they wrote um, about paganism and, and said positive things, they would just erase that to kind of, you know, give them a makeover so that they seemed fully Christian, right? Well, right. And and the, the church, the resulting church is mostly pagan. The Roman Catholic Church, its rituals, it, its saints, its feasts, were all pagan. These are all pagan concepts that were brought into the Roman Catholic Church because there was not even mention, even in the early Christian writers whose writings are maintained, Irenaeus, Eusebius, um, no, not Eusebius, I'm sorry, he's 4th century. I don't consider him early. 
Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen, Clement of Alexandria, Clement of Rome, Justin Martyr, in, in all of these truly early writings from the 2nd and 3rd centuries, there is no mention of a Christian priest. Because Christians don't need priests. Because, as the gospel teaches, every man should be a king and a priest of his own household. Every Christian man should be as a priest in the sense of serving and committing himself to God. And the scripture tells us how to do that. We do that by loving our brother. We do that by keeping the commandments. We don't do it by seeking to rule over one another. That is what Nicolaitans are. They are conquerors of the laity. That They conquer the people. That's the word Nicolaitans. The word laity coming from the Greek word laos, which is simply people. So, there was, there was no concept of a Christian priest until the 4th century when it started appearing in church authors and church writers, and you had an entire pagan Roman priesthood suddenly become a Christian Roman priesthood. And they maintained all of their pagan rituals and practices and, and devils or or gods and goddesses that they worshipped, and they transformed them into Christian saints instead of gods and goddesses, or Christian rituals, and, and found ways in the gospel in the New Testament to make their rituals and the necessity for a priest look like it was Christian. But it's not Christian at all. It's all pagan. The rituals and rites of the Greek Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church all have their roots in paganism. The Lutheran and Anglican churches had maintained most of that. They got rid of some of it, but not enough. Okay, that's more a rant than it is a digression. Revelation chapter 12. Here we will discuss this chapter, but we will not offer a full commentary on every aspect of the chapter. Rather, we will endeavor to contain our commentary to what is necessary in order to demonstrate the proof of our assertion. That the woman in the wilderness represents the children of Israel collectively just as she had in those prophecies, and that this also demonstrates that the children of Israel are modern white Europeans. So from Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon at her feet, under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. This symbolism is found is first found, I should say, in Genesis chapter 37, in words attributed to Joseph, where we read, And he dreamed yet another dream, and told it to his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars made obeisance to me. Joseph himself, being the twelfth star, 
The woman represents Israel collectively, as those symbols indicate. Moving on and that's to Revelation. Um, fascinating, right, Bill, that um, Joseph ended up all on his own uh, in Egypt. Um, and, and if you look, you know, arguably, if Ephraim and Manasseh are Britain and America, they're kind of separated from the rest of Europe. And Joseph and that pharaoh ends up or well, a few generations later enslaves the whole of israel and britain and america certainly contributed to this beast system more than anyone else right which now enslaves us so it's kind of a repeat in history right well well it absolutely seems to be yes that is true um the the power of our race over the entire world or, or planet, if I could call it that, or globe, if I could call it that. The, the power which our race has exerted over the entire world, I mean, the Spanish tried and didn't quite make it. The French tried, the Dutch tried to establish worldwide colonies and control worldwide trade or at least be the prime, the, the supreme nation con conducting that trade. Let me put it that way. The Dutch, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the French had all tried, but they all failed. The Germans had even tried to establish overseas colonies, and they were deprived of them in their wars with England, which was part of the objective of the English. If you really study the build-up to the First World War, that was part of how Germany angered England to have the English orchestrate that war. And that war was certainly orchestrated. Wars don't just break out by accident. So Germany lost its colonies. Ultimately, England also lost all of its colonies on paper. After World War II, the British Empire was dissolved. What really happened, in truth, was the British Empire was translated to the Jews, the Jewish banking families that operate in the city of London with satellite offices in New York and elsewhere. So, that being said, yes, it's true that it was Joseph's success in Egypt which brought the Israelites into Egypt, and they ended up being enslaved. And that's a very excellent observation, because I hadn't really thought of it that way. But through what we believe are the tribes primarily descended from Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, in England and later in America, our people and, and all the white Christian people in the world have once again become slaves to this international Jewish banking system, which we'll talk about later on here in relation to Revelation chapter 17, if we get that far today. Going on to Revelation chapter 12, verse 2. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. As we shall see, this represents the birth of Christ but not in reference to Mary as an individual. Rather, the woman is Israel collectively, of which Mary was a part. 
The travailing and pain seem to represent the tumultuous history of Judea in the centuries leading up to the birth of Christ, when the Edomites had taken over Judea. Then in in verse 3, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. It is later revealed that the dragon is one and the same as Satan, the devil, and that old serpent. In that manner, the revelation is informing us of the origin of those who opposed Christ and who wanted to kill him and who also go on to make war against the woman, as we shall see here. The seven heads and ten horns are also a feature of the beast empires, which would rule over the earth wheresoever the children of men dwell, as we see in Daniel chapters 2 and 7. And as we already discussed here in relation to Daniel from Revelation chapter 13, the seven heads ostensibly may also represent seven empires, which would rule over at least most of the children of Israel throughout history. But by this time, there had only been six, Egypt, Assyria, Persia, Babylon, Greece, and Rome. In Revelation chapter 13, it also says that the beast gets its power from the dragon, which we shall be able to better identify here in verse 4. And his tail, that great red dragon, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. As we shall see when we read verses 7 and 8, the stars cast to earth describe a phenomenon which had already occurred and which also helps to identify the dragon as well as explaining things which were not revealed in the Old Testament, such as the origin of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. First, so, so it's linking um, if if there really was uh, if the, the Satan, the head angel, really did draw a third of the angels with him, then his offspring are just continuing the same rebellion, right, against Yahweh, and and in this time it's against Christ, who is Yahweh, right? Yes, and they always have, and that's why there's enmity between the two seeds of Genesis chapter 3. That's why Cain had killed Abel. That's why the Canaanites and the Rephaim were to be completely destroyed, according to the commandments of Yahweh to the children of Israel entering the land of Canaan. And... Theoretically, if they had completely destroyed the Canaanites and the Rephaim and the Kenites and all the other aliens in the land of Palestine in 15th century BC, in the 1400s BC, when Joshua was waging those wars, then they certainly wouldn't have stopped there in their pursuit of world conquest because, as it's outlined in Isaiah and elsewhere, the children of Israel were destined to fill the face of the world with fruit. 
you can't effectively do that unless you drive out or destroy all other people before you. You just keep pushing them until they fall into the ocean. So they failed in Palestine. Therefore, and, and of course, if we read Genesis and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, this was the plan of God all along. He knew that they were going to fail. Therefore, they were driven into captivity and sent into the wilderness. So it was those people that were sent into the wilderness, even though there were many other people in Europe and, and the Mediterranean basin that were descended from the ancient Israelites, those people driven into the wilderness would eventually become the chief of all those nations, the, the Germanic tribes, the Germans and, and the English. The entire Holy Roman Empire was German in its leadership and, and in its nature. It was Germanic, and it came to rule over the... What, whatever true Italians were left in Italy, whatever true Spanish and Goths were left in, in Spain and Portugal after the Arabic invasions, right? And it, it came to rule over all those nations, the, the Holy Roman Empire, for a thousand years until leading us into the hegemony of the British Empire and now the American Empire in the modern world. Okay, that's also a digression. First, before we see the identity and origin of the dragon, first in verse 5, the identity of the child is revealed. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. The man-child must, therefore, be the Messiah, the promised son of the second psalm, where we read from verses 7 through 9, I will declare the decree. Yahweh has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So here we see a direct reference to that psalm and the promise of a Messiah, which is Yahshua Christ. And this is the revelation of that Messiah. So he is explaining these things himself. The only historic entity which sought to kill the Messiah as soon as he was born was Herod, the Edomite, as we read in Matthew chapter 2. But Herod failed to kill him. And he was not caught up to the throne of God until after his ministry and redemptive work and all things written concerning him were completed. So we read in verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. The woman was, for the most part, already in Europe by the time of Christ. Lithuania was the last European nation to adopt Christianity in 1387, much later than most of the others. Before them, 
the Swedes were mostly converted by the end of the 12th century. We would therefore assert that the 1260 days is representative of the approximate number of years which it took for the Israelites, who had become European nations, to receive and accept the gospel of Christ. And they were all migrating at different times, right? So it might all add up uh, for each tribe per their country that they ended up in. Well, at least roughly, yes. Yes, that's plausible. It, it's estimable. Let me put it that way. Now, the following passages seem to have multiple fulfillments. One, in the origin of Satan, the serpent. Another, in the result of the ascension of the Christ into heaven after the resurrection. And yet another, which is beyond the scope of this discussion, so I won't go there. So, continuing with the chapter. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. The so-called Herod the Great. The Jews love to call him Herod the Great. There must be a reason for that. Herod the Great who by treachery had gotten himself appointed king of Judea by the Romans, was an Edomite, which is established in the histories of Flavius Josephus, as there were many, as were many of the first century Judeans who had opposed Christ. There, it is also evident that Herod and his successors had been appointing, I should say, there in Josephus. It is also evident that Herod and his successors had been appointing their own friends and countrymen into positions of power in Judea, including the position of high priest. This is also evident in Romans chapter 9, in the words of Paul of Tarsus, and in the prophecies of Malachi, which relate to the time of Christ. In the words of Christ himself, his adversaries are identified with these same entities, the devil, Satan, that old serpent, and in other ways. For that reason, he had also told them that they were not his sheep, for which reason they did not believe him, and that God was not their father, ostensibly because they were bastards. Yet Herod himself was not the dragon. Herod only represented the collective dragon when Christ was born, and he fulfilled the role of would-be infant murderer. Throughout the historic narrative of the Old Testament, it is evident that the Edomites are the product of Esau and his Canaanite wives. Genesis chapter 36. The Canaanites had for centuries mingled with the Kenites, Kenites and the Rephaim, Genesis chapter 15, and they in turn were derived from the Nephilim or the fallen ones, Genesis chapters 3 and 6 and Numbers chapter 13. So in the Revelation in chapter 12, Christ himself is revealing the origin of the race of his enemies, as he referred to them consistently 
as a race in the gospel. He not only called them serpents, he called them the offspring of serpents and the race of serpents. And here he also reveals the ultimate reason why they sought to kill him and at the same time had usurped for themselves the claim to be the people of God. We read in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that they say they are Judeans but are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. He had revealed these same things in the gospel and especially in John chapters 8 and 10. From these are the Jews of today and also the Arabs and other mixed races. And um, it's exactly the same with Cain and Abel, right? Uh, Cain wants the priesthood. He doesn't get it. So he just kills uh, Abel and tries to take it for himself. And uh, the whole history is just the same thing repeating, right? It's amazing. Absolutely. It's absolutely amazing. But you won't get this from any denominational church priest or pastor. It'll never happen. Say 10 Hail Marys and light two candles. You have to repent of that, <laughs> of that heresy. <laughs> so the devil was cast down before Yahweh God created Adam. And it was cast down again when Christ died in order to pay the price so that Yahweh God could be reconciled to Adam, as Paul of Tarsus explained in Romans chapter 5. When the race of Adam, which was by this time represented by the children of Israel, had accepted Christ, forsaking the paganism of the fallen angels, for example, Colossians chapter 2, the devil would see that he was cast down. So we read in the verses which follow, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. The accuser of our brethren is a collective title for the children of the devil who have hated and sought to corrupt the Adamic race, as you have said, from the beginning. One manifestation is illustrated in the book of Job, where the devil is depicted as accusing Job before God, accusing an innocent Job before God. Another is in Zechariah chapter 4, which is also a type for the struggle of Christ with his earthly enemies. I believe it's chapter 4. I don't think I even checked that. It's Zechariah chapter 3. I'm sorry. I, I didn't check that reference. I took it from memory. And of course, I was wrong. It's in Zechariah chapter 3, which is also a struggle, a type for the struggle of Christ with his earthly enemies, where Joshua, a man with the same name as Joshua Christ, is the high priest when the temple, when the second temple is rebuilt, and he withstands the accusations of Satan. 
as it's depicted in Zechariah chapter 3. But the depiction in Zechariah chapter 3, the circumstances of it are true, but it's written as a sort of parable, where the circumstances also fit the discourse between Christ and his adversaries during the time of his earthly ministry. After the resurrection, the Jews began to accuse Christians before the Romans, and as the early Christian writer Tertullian had attested, Jews were mostly responsible for the persecution of Christians by Rome, forever accusing them of crimes and unseemly practices which Christians themselves actually revile, but which the Jews have always practiced or promoted. The false accusations which Jews made against Christians are also evident in the pages of the historian Tacitus and elsewhere. But the wrath of the Jews is itself an assurance of our ultimate salvation, where we next read in verses 12 and 13 of Revelation chapter 12, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. The Jews had been persecuting Christians right from the beginning enlisting the Romans for that purpose with their constant agitation and false accusations. However, once Rome had accepted Christianity, they found much greater ways to persecute Rome itself. First, the flight of the woman to the wilderness is repeated, whereby we should understand her identity with certainty. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Here it is evident that a time, times, and half a time, or three and a half times, are the same as the 1260 days already mentioned in verse 6, where the woman is also described as being fed. If a time is a prophetic year, or 360 years, three and a half years, a day for a year, total 1260 years. This same length of time is repeated in Daniel chapter 7 and in Revelation chapter 13 in reference to other phenomena, the duration for which the series of four empires, and then the office of the papacy, would each rule over the children of Israel. If the woman is to be nourished for 1260 years, and if Christianity was fully accepted by white Europeans within that same period of time, when at the same time, it was extinguished practically everywhere else. Then the white Europeans are the women who would be nourished with the gospel for 1260 years. There may have been surviving 
odd pockets of Christians in diverse other places, such as in Lebanon or Egypt or even Ethiopia. But these were exceptions and anomalies, and the original apostles had never brought the gospel to either Egypt or Ethiopia. But at the time of Christ, those places contained many people who could certainly be identified with white Europeans. So the modern demographic and the religion to which they pretend is irrelevant. And uh, now, since replacement theology uh, came very quickly after Christianity, those places that were surrounded with bastards, uh, if they had that Christianity, they'd never survive, right? Because they would start Christianizing the bastards ultimately very quickly, right? Right. If it was meant to be for them, they would have Christianized the bastards. Where all of Europe had become Christian, and for over a thousand years before the Age of Liberty in the modern world, all of Europe practiced Christianity. Even though it was the Christianity that was mingled with paganism of the Roman Catholic Church, they nevertheless developed laws such as the English common law and customs even outside of the laws of Justinian, which were entirely Christian in their nature. They nevertheless kept the commandments of Christ. If those other nations and races, if any of the Chinese or, or the Indians or the Arabs of of Arabia and North Africa and, and the modern world, or the blacks of sub-Saharan Africa, if any of them were of the woman, if any of them were of Israel, then they too would have been Christian, nourished with the gospel for 1260 years. But Christianity did not survive in any of those places, except as tiny remnants and not even in most places, not even as tiny remnants, where Islam is, was accepted entirely or forced entirely on most of the people of all of those places, and often of all of the people of those places. Now to return to the persecution of the woman. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Once both Rome and the Goths in Iberia had fully accepted Christianity, the Jews became unwelcome in Europe and began to devise ways to use the bastard hordes of Arabia and Asia in order to attack Europe. So Islam was developed, and both the Arabs and Turks were converted, and in that manner they were militarized against the Europeans. This is over a thousand years of history which should establish the identities of both the woman and the devil with no room left for doubt or disputation.
So until this day, white Christians suffer the plight summarized in the final verse of the chapter, in verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. If the Jews hate white Christians today, that also proves that we are the true children of God. So in all world policy, who is the most despised according to the world? Why do they indoctrinate white children with things such as critical race theory, making whites guilty for all the sins of history, while the other races are all innocent victims and saints, and especially the Jews? Why is this happening today? Because we are the true children of God, and even our own governments hate us and make war with us when we attempt to uphold the laws of God. That's the situation. Yeah, there's no other way of of seeing it, right? If if you have the view that then you know that we're the only people who kept the commandments of God, and the people who despise us absolutely is the Jews, right? And they're the ones behind it all. So you you can clearly identify the two parties, right? It is all over modern media. It's all over the the social media sites on the internet. It's right in front of our faces that these Jews vocally and openly have been insisting on massive amounts of non-white immigration into white Christian nations for decades now, and, and that there are many blatantly open statements by Jews who are in positions of world leadership in one place or another, whether they be Jewish university professors or, or Jewish heads of non-government non-government organizations or, or Jewish corporate directors or corporate chairmen, Jewish media models, Jewish television personalities, Jewish movie directors or, or movie producers. It's all over society, this war against whites. It's in all of the media advertising, where you constantly see race-mixed couples and, and whites are made out to look like fools, while Negro beasts are, are promoted to the level of intelligent, sentient beings, which is something that they've never practiced in their own countries or in their own neighborhoods in America. And they're still um, doing the same tricks, falsely accusing us all the time, right, of, as you said, all the things they do themselves. So that shows you that clearly they are devils because they comprehend what they're doing is evil and, and they project it onto us and, and make us the evil people. So they know what they're doing is evil, but they don't care, right? Well, absolutely. They know what they're doing is evil, but to them it's good because they have always sought to corrupt the creation of God. And, and that's the Bible story in the Old Testament right from the beginning. Certain books in the early Christian era were eliminated from the scriptures. And that's unfortunate. But if we had those books, if we understood, if Christians were taught the wisdom of Solomon, and if Christians were taught 
the writings of Enoch, not the Ethiopic Enoch, which by chance was preserved in Ethiopia, but the true Enoch, which the apostles had quoted, which I believe is represented by the Enoch of the Dead Sea Scrolls, although we only have that in fragments. If Christians were taught those things, things which the apostles were aware of and quoted from and, and made examples from constantly, then we would have a deeper understanding. And it just wasn't meant to be because, as we will see, I, I believe in proof 70 of our series, which is upcoming shortly, not today, but perhaps next week, the children of Israel were also prophesied to be blind, and that was part of their punishment. So these things would have to happen. Once the revelation was laid out, it's the word of God. Once the children of Israel, many years before that, were sent into captivity, it's the word of God. It had to be fulfilled. The seven times of punishment had to be fulfilled. The revelation is not adding new prophecies to that. It's just retelling a lot of things that the prophet had, prophets had already said, and it's adding new revelations to what the prophets had already said. It's not changing the course of history, which was already laid out by the Old Testament prophets in the seven times punishment of the children of Israel and the time of Jacob's trouble, which was explained, would follow after that. That course was already set for the destiny of our race by the time of the first Assyrian deportations in 743 BC. And if you read the book of Numbers, that course was already set in the providence of God by the time of Moses. It can't be changed. The revelation is not changing it. The revelation is only explaining it in a way that we could understand better what has happened to our race because Christ came, as Matthew attests in Matthew chapter 13, to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Christians, denominational Christians, and denominational theologians, because they don't really understand history, and they don't really understand the Old Testament in connection with history, they make up these fantastic stories about the Revelation, ignoring all of the clues to its meaning found in the prophets of the Old Testament. So they'd rather believe that some at some point far off in the future, this antichrist beast with seven heads and ten horns is going to rule over men for seven years and torture them. But most good people will be taken up in the rapture before that happens, so it don't really matter. And that's all bullshit. None of that is true. That's not what the Revelation is saying at all. Okay. So with that digression, we have Revelation chapter 17 which is no longer the wilder, woman in the wilderness. Now it's the whore of Babylon. Yeah, and this is another one where Christians are baffled who it could be, and they think, oh, maybe it's Hillary Clinton or um, Angela Merkel, right? Because they can't just figure out, as we've said, it's, it's the same person, it's the Israelites, right? Who um, were nourished in the wilderness and started to get the gospel and built great Christian nations. But then, um, as, as we said, 
particularly um, later on, uh, that the beast system started to take over and, and people are now in bed with it, right? They, they, many people today probably couldn't live without it, without having uh, TV and, and Netflix and watching football and, and all that kind of stuff, right? Right. They wouldn't know what to do with themselves. So they work to attain these entertainments and, and they spend a great deal of their labor on these entertainments instead of spending it on their own children. In Revelation chapter 12, John knew that the woman was in the wilderness being nourished for 1260 days or three and a half times. Revelation chapter 13 is not a continuation of the prophecies which preceded. But instead, it is a sort of overview, a wider vision giving an alternate perspective on many of the things which befell the children of Israel during their seven times of punishment, which was announced to them in Leviticus chapter 26, in the curses which they were told that they would suffer for their continued disobedience, where we read, and I'll read several verses from verse 21. And if you walk contrary to me, this is Yahweh speaking, and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children. Negroes are doing that in America today. And destroy your cattle and make you few in number and your highway shall be desolate. Try driving through Atlanta if you don't believe the fulfillment of that. And if you will not be reformed by me by these things, but will walk contrary unto me, then will I also walk contrary unto you, and will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall avenge the quarrel of my covenant. And when you are gathered together within your cities, I will send a pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. And if you want to look at the mayors of most of these cities and who's ruling over you, it's very clear that this is being fulfilled again today in modern times. And when I have broken the staff of your bread, ten women shall bake bread in your one shall bake your bread in one oven, and they shall deliver your bread again by weight, and you shall eat, but not be satisfied. And if you will not for all this hearken unto me, but walk contrary unto me, then will I walk contrary unto you also in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. The seven times period of punishment described in Revelation chapter 13, is also described from different perspectives in Daniel chapters 2 and 7, which employ some similar terms. Then, chapters 14 and 15 of the Revelation contain a promise of hope for the children of Israel. And chapter 16 depicts the punishments which would come upon the men who worshipped the beast which we would assert describes the circumstances under which the women, the woman in the wilderness would ultimately suffer as she became the whore of Babylon. The seven vials describe the conditions which arose on account of those circumstances. All those conditions are in the world today. It's much too lengthy a discussion to present here. 
These things would occur after the events described by the prophecies in Revelation chapters 8 through 11 had run their course, from the fall of Rome to the opening of the little book and the two witnesses. Finally, John is brought to the wilderness to see what has become of the woman. This is the same wilderness to which the woman had fled in visions that described historic events that transpired over the many centuries before. So we read in the opening verses of John chapter 17, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So we can't think this is some different woman. This is the same woman that was already nourished in the wilderness with the gospel for 1260 years. Except now the woman has joined herself to the beast. Now things have changed. And we will explain that here, I pray. We will explain it adequately. Because it's very clear once you see it, you cannot unsee this. Bill, is it um, scarlet colored because it was um, the Germanic tribes with all the um, kings of Juna, you, you know, the scarlet being, being the, uh, the bloodline and, and the kings and the nobles and all that? Right. Or it could be scarlet covered because Esau was red and red is the color of communism. And the woman has been slowly accepting Jewish communism ever since she's married herself to the beast and became a whore. So there's various aspects that could be seen in this scarlet color, right? It, it's the beast that's scarlet colored. So we see the woman has joined herself to the beast. And this is the same beast which derives its power from the dragon, as we read in Revelation chapter 13. But here the woman sits atop the beast as if she is in command of it. This is also the same sin for which the children of Israel had been punished in ancient times for committing fornication in international trade with all of the nations of the earth. That is explained in the words of the prophet Hosea, as well as elsewhere in the prophets. In Revelation chapter 18, in the fall of Babylon, Mystery Babylon is directly related to the international merchants. But the connection is deeper. English mercantile law in the late Middle Ages was derived from the Babylonian shetar, the commercial law of the Jews, which is found in the Talmud. For the woman to become a whore, Jewish usury had to become acceptable. Christians were barred from usury, which was considered a sin. Even Roman Catholics were barred from usury for many centuries. Yeah, we, we can't imagine living out with um, outside of these laws now, right? That the idea that you need to borrow uh, money off a bank to get a house and then you have to pay three times back. But, um, you know, hundreds of years ago, it wasn't like that, right? And, and there were even 
laws that um if someone owed you money that you could not take their house that oh well you know you shouldn't have lent the money to them then you could never deprive a person of their house right right under english common law that changed with the introduction of the shitar into england and the restructuring of english commercial english commercial law in this especially in the 16th century and i'll, I'll explain that shortly the Jews had secretly loaned money at usury to at least much of the noble class for many centuries. Whenever they found a noble who could be corrupted with usury, they were also employed as tax collectors, and their usury and other activities forbidden the Christians were heavily taxed. So the noble class used the Jews, who were not citizens, as a source of revenue. For that, Jews were protected by the kings. So at the same time, as the two witnesses were making their testimony, which is during the time of the Reformation, Christians in Europe were made to accept usury in England. Jews were expelled, and usury was expressly prohibited by King Edward I in 1290 AD. But in the 16th century, King Henry VIII first lifted the ban on usury. And although it was reversed after his death, it was lifted again permanently under Elizabeth I in 1571. As we discussed here recently, during the Fifth Lateran Council in the early 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church had sanctioned the Monte di Pieta, which were basically pawn shops operated by the church. These changes paved the way for legitimizing Jewish moneylending, our modern economy, which is based on credit, and ultimately the Jewish domination of Christian society. Luther didn't accept you. And that's probably why um, Henry VIII and Elizabeth got such long reigns, right? Because they allowed the Jews to go do usury, right? Absolutely. Otherwise, they'd have been overthrown because Jewry was accumulating power on the continent since the Catholic Church had come to accept usury. So the Jews were accumulating their power and, and building themselves up to the point with in concert with the Reformation that they could assert themselves as legitimate bankers throughout all of the European nations. And there were many other ways at the same time that the Jews were infiltrating Christian society because the Reformation and their alliances with Martin Luther, who didn't write his treatise on the Jews and their lies until 1543, and by then it was too late, his own church never accepted it. The Jews were in bed with the Protestants. They supported Cromwell, who overthrew what was perceived to be a king, James II, who would return England to the Roman Catholic Church, so the Jews financed Cromwell. They had 
Yeah, you know, there's speculation as to whether Calvin was a Jew or not, because he accepted usury, where Luther rejected it. Many of the many of the Puritans had later rejected usury, even though Cromwell was a Puritan. And in New England, and I believe this is why we know his name today, this is really why, Cotton Mather had done circuits in New England to coax all of the ministers, church ministers in New England, especially in Massachusetts, to accept usury. That's why he's really famous, but that's not what the history books tell us. No doubt he offered them little percentages if, and cuts if they, uh, you know, promoted it. Well, well he, he convinced them that it was the necessity for Massachusetts to prosper in commerce. There's even more I could speak on, on the subject than that. However, this usury struggle was difficult for Protestants to resist, especially because the Jews had been financing the rise of Protestantism. They helped spread, it was their printing presses that helped spread the treatises which were written by Martin Luther and other reformers. The Jews were in bed with the Protestants from the beginning. I explained this, but it's nothing that can be easily explained. I believe it's a three-part series of podcasts at Christagenia, in, and it's within a greater series called The Jews in Medieval Europe, which explains how Jews got involved in the Reformation and rallied behind Martin Luther because they were opposed to the Roman popes and to many of the monks, especially the Dominican monks, who in, in the years just before Luther had attempted to get the Pope, the De Medici Pope, to agree to burn the Talmuds, to let them collect all the Talmuds from the Jews and burn them. The, the Dominican monks wanted to burn the Talmuds, and especially the Kabbalah, while at the same time the Jews were promoting the Kabbalah among European academics, for which reason it came to the Dominican monks' attention. Alchemy is all based on the Kabbalah, on the Jewish Kabbalah, and that's the basis for modern science. That's also how the Jews got themselves in England into the Masonic Lodges. And, and became speculative masons rather than stonemasons. And they introduced speculative masonry into the Masonic Lodges, which was basically alchemy. And that's the foundation for Freemasonry today. And that also explains why today Freemasonry is nothing but Zionism for the Goyim. That's all it is. Every Freemason is a programmed Zionist. And, and acts in every way on behalf of the Jews. It shows you how um, cunning and, and forward-thinking the Jews are, right? That they were willing to back Protestantism, which isn't exactly great for them, but it was, in the long run, they could just use it to get rid of Catholicism and then eventually do away with Protestantism, right? It was just a necessary evil from their perspective that they had to put up with to um, bring their plans forward, right? Absolutely, because to, to, 
to white Christian Protestants, they were protesting a, a Roman Catholic church that had itself already been corrupted by the Jews. The Borgias were Jews and they were popes. The De Medicis were Jews and they were popes. The Roman Catholic church was already corrupted and became oppressive of Northern Europe. And this is all very evident in, in the life and works of reformers such as Luther. The white Christian Europeans wanted to return to the gospel of Christ and throw the shackles of the church off. And the Jews found that very convenient an ally in their own struggle to throw off the shackles of the popes because the one thing that Roman Catholics did correctly was to oppress Judaism, to oppress the Jews. The one thing the Roman Catholics screwed up on is to allow Jews to convert, thinking that you could change a wolf into a sheep. So every aspect of our history has two sides. That there's no cut and dry, everything's either black or white. That, that's not true at all. History is a lot more complex than that. So the Roman Catholic Church was good in some ways, bad in others. The Protestants were good in some ways, bad in others. Protestant won out, and that allowed the word of God to remain open, or we would not be having this conversation today. Yeah, and, and there's always been that dragon in the background, right? empowering the beast which the revelation tells of and financing all sides and the jew was playing both sides during the reformation just like he plays both sides during every single war you'll find different jews on each side usually but you'll find puppet masters who are going to win regardless of which side wins yeah, and the difference is that they would be talking to each other behind the scenes whilst uh, we, the Europeans, would really, truly be at war with each other, right, in these Absolutely. silly wars. That, that's, well, that, that's explained in Scripture too, but that's how the dragon makes war with the, the woman, with the children of God, often by having us make war with each other, by creating divisions where there should be none. Yeah, it's that, that parable, right, that the um, Christ parable, that the children of this age are smarter towards each other than the children of the light. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of course. Yes, because the translation in the King James Version is just wrong. So we see that this woman has joined herself to the beast. And we've asserted that for the woman to become a whore, Jewish usury had to become acceptable. And we saw how Jewish usury was made acceptable, both in England and in the areas still controlled by the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century. Reading further in Revelation chapter 17, verse 4, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now, right there, if she was not Israel, Yahweh God wouldn't have cared about her fornication because the law was only given to the children of Israel. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. 
So the woman imagines herself to be wealthy with her merchandise, while she is actually filthy by reason of her abominations and fornication. This perfectly describes the state of white Christian Israel today, which is defiled with globalism, international trade, a debt-driven economy, and endless immigration, leading to idolatry, race-mixing, and many other sins. It is not the white race which has been commercialized by any other race. Whites were not colonized by other races to accept their laws and customs. Rather, the white Europeans accepted the deeds of the Jews, and for the motivation of profit, they had colonized all the other races and had enjoined them to accept white European trade, law, and customs, at least to the extent where they could be exploited for natural resources and employed in manufacture and other areas. So that also proves the identity of the woman who, for having done those things, is now a whore. We read in Revelation chapter 17, verse 6, and I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration in her conquest for world dominion, where it is actually the dragon and its beast which have dominion, the woman would even destroy the faithful of her own people. If the woman does not destroy them as adversaries, she destroys them as her own by sending them off to endless wars in the name of world peace. Most of those young men who have been killed in such wars, having been Christians, the woman celebrating its veterans certainly is drunk with the blood of the saints. We'll move on to Revelation chapter 17, verse 17. For God has put it in her hearts to fulfill his will because he wrote these things beforehand. They must be fulfilled. There's no avoiding them. And to agree and to give their kingdom under the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. The woman is also described as a city, the city of God, in the closing chapters of the Revelation. So the analogy does not harm our interpretation. Yahweh God dwells in his people, but cannot dwell in them if they are in a state of sin. So while there is, a, while there is still a remnant of Christians, most of the children of God now seem to worship the beast. The cities from which the world is ru ruled are in the they're within the nations of the woman. No other race has, met, has ever met any of the criteria by which they could be identified as the Israel of the Bible, except the white race. Yeah, and we, and we fit it perfectly. And, you know, that's what you would expect from the word of God, that we were Christian and then we got deceived into um, accepting all these other races and, and this international trade and intermixing with them and, and accepting them and, and trying to convert them. And, and it's all just failed and led to this, um, well, this horrible 
life we're in now, right? Where where most people don't even realize that it's horrible. They they think it's good and that everything's great. Well, well, right. America was over ninety percent white and and ninety percent Christian until after the Second World War, until perhaps the nineteen sixties, perhaps over eighty five percent white. Europe was much the same, where, where most European nations, we won't consider the, the southern Italy or, or Spain or Portugal, which have a lot of mixed people, but even with that, most European nations were over 90% white until the recent waves of immigration from the Arab and African nations. So, most of Europe was also over 90% Christian until after the Second World War, when Europe essentially became de-Christianized through Jewish propaganda and American re-education and the horrors of Soviet communism in the East, which de-Christianized Eastern Europe, even though the people of Eastern Europe have made great strides back towards Christianity. So, with that being said, no, no other race can possibly, can possibly have fulfilled these scriptures. And these scriptures, these prophecies are clearly fulfilled in the history of our white Christian race. So we must be the woman who fled into the wilderness in the first place, the ancient children of Israel. We must be, without a doubt. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, as always, Bill. Thank you. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thank you. With all certainty. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. Good night.